Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your two hosts, Ben Wilson, joined by... Michael Burke. Hi, everyone. And this week, we're going to have a slightly different episode where it's going to be a pseudo AMA. Michael, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about? Yeah, so Ben wrote a pretty cool book. I'll let you intro it, but I'm about halfway done and um, it has a lot of wisdom in it. And it's actually a a really interesting take on sort of the soft side of machine learning development. So project scoping and uh, ensuring value and things like that. You have tons of flowcharts, tons of examples of questions that should be asked. And those examples really provide the ability for you to tangibly act on the advice instead of saying, oh, you should make sure that it provides value. No one knows what that means ever. So if you actually are able to define value, and value often differs in different circumstances, if you're able to define value, then you can act upon it. So I had some questions, and I thought we could just do an Ask Me Anything style podcast. that work with you, Ben? Yeah, sounds great. Cool. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So would you mind just introing the book and saying what it's about? Machine Learning Engineering in Action, published by Manning. You can get it off their, their website. It's also for sale on Amazon and pretty much anywhere you can buy tech books. It's a culmination of things that I've screwed up in my career. It's basically what it is if you distill it down. The TLDR is like, here's how Ben was dumb or just ignorant about things. I was like most people who get into data science work and projects thinking, hey, if I get the right data and I build this amazing model and, and it, I get my, my accuracy really, really great, my, my error metrics really low, then everybody's going to want to use it. All I have to do is just just build that model and, and push it out there. And the business is going to be amazed and they're going to, everybody's going to use the predictions. And after doing that once <laughs> and realizing, wow, I just wasted two months of my life on something that nobody cares about, that there's not even really a business need. There's not even a way for people to access this data that it, my model is producing. And nobody was asking for this. So I learned a lot of hard lessons early on in project work. And that's that translated over a, a period of years of not doing silly things like that, but going in and trying like talking to the business or the business coming to talk to me and saying, hey, you need to solve this problem. And we don't know how to solve it. Uh, we don't know where the data is, but just go and figure out this. And then going off and finding the data, not thinking through the engineering or maintainability aspects of it 
and building something that's really fragile, even if there is a business need for it. And that can be even worse than building something that nobody cares about. So I just when I was planning out the book, I started to write down all the stories of things that I'd screwed up. And that basically blocked out the content of the first third of the book. And really, a lot of every topic that's in that book is something that I had to learn the hard way. And that's why I wrote it. And the job I was doing while I was writing the book was being an advisor consultant to a lot of different companies who had questions on how to operationalize ML. I know we, a lot of people say, oh, productionize the, the model. And that's more from an engineering perspective. Like, okay, let's make sure that we're monitoring the outputs and that we're testing our code and we're using CICD. And operationalizing is a broader scope from my perspective. And that was the topic that I wanted to write about, which is exactly as you said, like, how do you, how do you talk to the business? How do you ask the right questions? How do you figure out what they really want? And who do you need to work with? And here's how you figure that out. Here's the structure of how to do it. And then there's a lot of big things in the first couple of chapters that are focused on what is important, like what is critical about a project that you need to be thinking about before you start writing code, before you start pulling data. And what are the things that, that are completely irrelevant? You know, selecting a model beforehand or a framework beforehand. A lot of people do that. They're like, hey, I know TensorFlow. I'm using TensorFlow. And the problem could have been solved with SQL. Or it's it, or it wasn't even a problem to begin with. Like whoever's manually doing it is doing it better and faster than any ML implementation could ever hope to get to. So going through that, that's the first sort of focuses of of the book. Right. So there there are three sections. First is an introduction to machine learning engineering. Um, that covers everything from scoping all the way down to sort of hyperparameter tuning. Part two is preparing for production: colon creating maintainable ML. And then the third is uh, a lot of the code, um, like how to write production code. Taking a step back, why should people trust you? <laughs> I don't know, because I've l- like learned these these issues the hard way. It's really hard to, to read something that's written from within the echo chamber of an extremely large tech organization who are making references to internal tooling or systems that have had hundreds of people contributing to them. There's usually a lot of great wisdom in those type of books, but there's something to be said from the point of view of of somebody who's approached it from a, a scrappy hacker perspective. You learn a lot by doing a lot of stupid things. And that's how I've learned what I've learned. And doing that for my own projects, it definitely prepared me for the the job I was doing at Databricks and advising companies. But throughout that process as well, I've interacted with hundreds of corporations from all different industries and been able to see their code and see why, like, see all of the different problems, not just from an implementation perspective, which I did see many of those, but also from a business perspective. Like, how does this data science team talk to the rest of their groups? And when I ask, like, hey, who's the subject matter expert in this team? And I get crickets in the room. People are like, what do you mean? Like, we're the subject matter experts. I'm like, no, you're not. You're the statistical and mathematic and implementation of ML experts, but you don't, you're not doing this job that you're, you're solving a problem for. You're building a churn model. Where's the people from marketing? Like, they're the ones that really care about this. They're the ones that know about this problem. And I, I would preemptively when starting projects with 
with customers sometimes start asking those questions. And I started to realize that other consultants and other people that these teams have asked advice for, they're never asking that or even bringing that up. So if to save my own breath, putting that down in a book, I thought was was kind of useful. Got it. Now, you mentioned that you learned all of these things through hard work, trial and error, just being in there and making mistakes. What are your thoughts on having someone tell you a solution versus you figuring it out for yourself? Like, what is the difference in value in terms of learning? Because I could go learn all these things myself. It might take 20, 30 years, but I could probably do it. But you're teaching it right here. What will I lose? You'll lose a lot of frustration by listening to how somebody else is giving advice. And the corollary I can give to it is kind of what I do day to day now, you know, software development. I wasn't doing that 10 years ago. I wasn't writing framework or infrastructure code or or building libraries. I did that a few times with internal tools, but didn't really build it robustly because it didn't need to be. And I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, So everything that I've learned over the last four or five years about how to do that has been asking people, looking at what other people have done. And then there's some amount of trial and error with respect to that's like the PR process. When you're, you got a branch and you want peers to review it, they're going to tear it apart and tell you all the things that are potentially you know, hidden landmines in your code. But I didn't go through that process from a pure trial and error. If I did, I, I would probably be writing some pretty terrible code right now and wouldn't know how to properly write tests and wouldn't know how to, to do all the things that are involved in software engineering. So it, books are good for that. I mean, I've read many dozens of them some language specific, some of them just process specific, like, hey, how do I think about how to structure code? and What are good design patterns? So there's something to be said for learning from the right resources. And there's definitely a lot of bad advice out there on the interwebs about software engineering. And certainly, I would argue even more about data science and ML uh, engineering, because it's so nascent. But if you can learn from, from somebody who's gone through the the pain of screwing stuff up many times that, that's good but that process of screwing it up you can get away with that when you're dealing with something that nobody really understands and i would i just happen to be like lucky enough to be starting in this profession back when people just thought it was like cool little research projects and nobody really cared companies don't think like that about ml anymore they're thinking about how does this make me money and who do i got to yell at when this thing breaks so it's it's a forced narrative now that you have to you have to speed up the process of learning and you can't get away with you know spending 3 months on a project that goes nowhere because now there's there's infrastructure in those teams there's a data science manager there's a director of of data science and analytics at the company there's a vp in charge of all of that stuff advanced analytics and data science they're going to be scrutinizing that team because that team's expensive like really expensive some companies data science team every member on there is making anywhere from 40 to 100 percent more than software engineers depending on what industry you're in and people think about stuff like that like, hey we're paying you you know whatever 180 dollars to to build these models three months of your time wasted on something that goes nowhere yeah people are gonna have questions yeah that is a beautiful transition to my next question which is in the first chapter, you break down sort of what is ML engineering. Could you give sort of an overview of what 
your experience has been for the key roles? Does it fit into the data analyst, data scientist, ML engineer, data engineer, those four archetypes? Or is it better to have a broad skill set in those archetypes, like within those archetypes? What in your experience has industry looked like? I always think it's kind of interesting when people apply labels. I mean, I always thought that the data scientist title was really weird when it when I first started seeing people with that job title. It's like data scientists. Like, aren't those people like people with like PhDs in statistics and and they work at these scientific labs? And I was like, that's such a weird title to give to somebody. But then I also find other titles like that kind of odd as well, like data engineering architect. It's like doesn't all data engineering have to architect how they're storing data and how they're processing it. So it, it's really weird how the uh, sort of separation of powers and distribution of, or specialization of labor goes hand in hand with that. But to answer your question, uh, it's really, it depends on the industry and the history of the company is how people compose teams and how integral data in general is to their company and their business. So it, if you're talking about a company that has been around long before computers were even a thing, they're probably not really geared towards thinking about team composition. A lot of those companies are really big. They just have a ton of employees. So as you get further and further away from the optimal tribal size, which in tech, personally, I think a tribal size, the optimal size is 60. Once you start getting bigger than that, you start creating a town or a village. And then eventually, when you get to mega corporation size and you have over 100,000 employees, you might have 6, 10, 20 different data science teams that are all focused on different parts of the business. Some have embedded data engineering teams within them. Some don't. Some are purely research focused. So it depends on the mission, the company type, the age of the company, and really how serious they are. You, know, you con contrast that with a startup that is ML first. You know, it's their product is the result of tasks that are done on data they might not generate. They, maybe they're buying the data from, from other places or they are generating the data, but the only way that they make money is through models. Then you're going to see much more structure of a balance between specialists in a field of study and generalists who can sort of bridge and fill in gaps. And it, it depends on what team dynamic you need to make. But that the separation that I see between successful and not successful is not about team composition with respect to, you know, prior skill sets coming in. It's more about the mentality and attitude of those people that are on that team. If everybody has the desire to become both a generalist and a specialist. So I think everybody should anybody who's in this this profession as whether you're called a data scientist or called an advanced analytics professional or an ML engineer, if you're a data scientist, you should specialize in a, a field of data science work. Maybe it's simulation modeling. Maybe it's causality. Maybe it's you're really good with linear models. Like you're an expert. You understand how they how they're actually implemented. Maybe you're really good with deep learning or computer vision or sound processing, whatever it may be. You have some specialization there, but you shouldn't restrict yourself to just like, hey, I'm the NLP guy. Like, I don't, I don't do any of that other stuff. A good person who is a specialist who knows deeply about that, that thing, their role is to learn from others on the team and then teach others. So teach about your specialization in a generalist way. Spoiler alert, it makes you even more of a specialist if you can teach. So it, it 
deepens your understanding of your own subject uh, matter expertise. But then striving to gain generalist knowledge. I think all people in data science and ML engineering, well, ML engineering is different, but everybody who's a data scientist should understand that they need to continue to grow in software development skills, should know how to write cleaner code, write more testable code, write easier to maintain code, less complex code, write something that can be, you know, tested in a CI framework and understand what those frameworks look like and how to do, you know, learn how to use Git properly. Like there's a lot of core technical things from software engineering that data scientists, I believe, need to know. And that'll become more critical as a, a core skill set. But you don't need to know how to, you know, implement a framework as a data scientist. You don't need to know how to how to build some generic command and control software suite for your team. That that's so out of scope of that that core work type. But then on the other hand, for ML engineers, they should have a, a software engineering background and understand software really, really well. They have to be able to build production grade systems and integrate among many different types of open source tools and build utilities for the data scientists to use and work on working with the data scientists to make those models more production ready. But they should also learn data science techniques as well. Like an ML engineer should know how to build a random forest that, that actually works, not a demo that they copy off the internet. They should know how to build visualizations just like a data scientist should. But then the, the things that I talk about in that first chapter, first two or three chapters about team composition and, and merging of skill sets, it's all about just that that community of teaching one another and learning. Because the more you learn about all these different aspects of this, this sort of grouping of specialized technical knowledge in order to get a project across the finish line, the more that everybody knows kind of what's going on, the more successful it's going to be. Because people are smart, right? Even if they don't have that specialization, they're, they're still smart human beings. And sometimes somebody who doesn't have context exactly on like, oh, this deep understanding of this esoteric aspect of, of this problem as an outsider looking at it like, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Could you explain that to me? And that question sometimes can trigger people to be like, oh, geez, we need to redo this. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. I've definitely been caught red-handed for using stuff that I have no idea how it works. <laughs> um, it, it, it doesn't go over well usually. But one framework to think about this is your job is to produce work that is good and will continue to be good. And you want to do that in the least amount of time possible. So one thing that I have noticed that always has a really high ROI, if you're doing repeated tasks, get really good at the tools that you use in those tasks. So those tools can be, as Ben said, Git, whatever programming language you're using. The less Googles you have to do in a given script, it'll exponentially save you time over time. That, like people who don't know the tools but use them every day, it it really frustrates me because you can just like spend an hour, learn the things, and then you have 10 more hours of your life back. So thinking of it in terms of like an ROI calculation is at least how I go about it. And then that's not super helpful for what skill sets are needed. I think they differ quite a bit between organization sizes and industries. Usually the larger the organization, the more specialized you can be because you're filling a very specific niche. But if you're in a startup, let's say of two people, you have to do everything. So it really depends upon size. And then as Ben said, if you are a company that was like born prior to computers, then you probably aren't the most tech savvy. You might be, but you probably aren't. And so that the verticals in the company history can really impact how tech is thought about. 
one transitioning question. Sort of, we might not get too deep into ML as as we're 23 minutes in already, but do you think data scientists and ML engineers are overpaid? <laughs> um, it depends. I'd say at at certain organizations that I've interacted with, and I'm most certainly not naming names right now, but I've worked, you know, interacted with some teams where the only thing that's running in production is something that a consultant built and nobody in-house understands it, can change it, can update it. It's just this black box that runs. They're doing work. They're sitting in a lot of meetings. They're having a lot of team discussions. They're thinking about what their grand plans are and they produce almost nothing or anything they do produce is completely useless to the company as a whole. So they rely on paying somebody an exorbitant amount of money to come in and just do it for them. So those people are overpaid. And I don't think that's necessarily a fault of their own. That's a company culture problem. And that's somebody got assigned to supervise or manage this team who has no, who's either just buried in red tape because of how these massive organizations work, or they're completely clueless. I've seen a lot of nepotism, like, oh, that person's related to some executive, and that's why they're the director of data science, but they have no idea what they're doing. And everybody on the team, all the good people bail really quickly from those teams within you know six months of getting hired. And you're just left with a bunch of people who are just terrified to get fired and can't really get a job in anywhere else, because even if they're trying, because they don't know anything because they haven't built anything. So yeah, those people are overpaid. <laughs> I've worked with with teams, startups and, and mid-market commercial size companies that I'm just like, I've seen what these people can do and how well they integrate with the rest of the business and how a tech lead data scientist is basically effectively running a huge part of the company and knows everybody. You know, you walk with them to go get a coffee in their office building and everybody greets them. And it's like, wow, you're, you're the local rock star. Got it. And it's because they've had to, had to have all these interactions with everybody in the company that they understand if you're successful in a, in a position like that, you know how to explain complex topics and explain things about our highly esoteric world in ways that everybody can understand. That's the only way to build those relationships is it's not dumbing down. It's just converting to using their their mental Rosetta Stone to translate into something that is understandable in layperson's terms. So those people are grossly underpaid. When you see somebody who's like that, and I've seen many dozens of those people at different companies, and you st- you're like, wow, I bet this person is not getting paid as much as C-level staff, but they're doing more for the company than C-level staff. So it really depends. Depends on the company and depends on the person, but I've seen more of the first type than of the second type, but I've still seen a lot of the second type. Got it. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. 
And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. In your opinion, what are... So taking a step back in terms of overpaid, it implies that you bring more value than you're being paid. Hopefully every single employee will do that or else they're not worth their salary and the company will go bankrupt. But some people are able to 10, 20x, whatever the number is, what their salary is with certain projects, with how they influence team culture, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What are, let's throw out three things that you think are really, really important to ROI in terms of your work? Ooh, that's an excellent question. I'd say number one is humility in the in the sense of being so averse to hubris that you actively work against that sort of default mode. If you're if you're the keeper of esoteric knowledge, human nature is to protect that and to think like think that you have some some worth that is greater than what others may esteem that to be. So the trick with being somebody who seems like they know a lot, if you want to continue to be successful in whatever that is, you have to keep on telling yourself and demonstrating to yourself how much you don't know. And any rational human is going to, when you start learning more and more about a topic, you're going to realize, wow, I know nothing about this, or I know so little about this, because the deeper you get into it, the more information and knowledge and, and skills that you realize are available. And in the world of data science and advanced statistics, it doesn't take that long to realize that there's more out there than anybody could learn in a lifetime. There's more out there than anybody can learn in a hundred lifetimes. So anybody who thinks they, they know it all about ML, uh, you know, it, they're not going to do well <laughs> with uh, having that, that sense of hubris because it, it blocks them off from interacting with other people. It puts this bubble around them of like, oh, I'm, I'm untouchable or other people see you as untouchable because like, whoa, this person's really smart. So humility brain will help bring humanity to a person. Yeah, and just to jump on that, yeah, I completely agree, but it also facilitates collaboration. Mm -hmm. As Ben said, if people think you're this like, for lack of a better word, like ML god or whatever the whatever the term is, people don't want to work with you usually. They're they're either intimidated or they think you'll just be an asshole to them. And if you're able to communicate like with an everyday person, with everybody in the team, you often get a lot more non-technical people talking to you, giving you ideas. You get those water cooler high fives, as Ben was saying, if you just are a nice person. <laughs> so sharing and leading with kindness, I know it sounds kind of preachy, but it really does have a, a major impact on not only the culture around you, but your specific projects. Yes. And bullet number two would be, don't be afraid. Like, seriously, don't be afraid to screw stuff up. If you're getting into data science, ML engineering from some sort of history, if you're coming straight from academia, it's really tough to come into industry from, you know, post-grad work where results are, ex are expected. Like, hey, you have to write this paper. You have to get published. You have to do this thing. Don't screw it up. People are going to tear you apart if this is wrong or this is flawed in some way. Real world isn't like that. Industry is not like that. It's more important to be fearless in what you're testing and test stuff fast, but don't be afraid if things don't work out. And pair that with bullet number three, which is communication. And we touched on it in that, that first bullet point about talking to other people, but it, I can't stress how important that is. Speaking personally, I've always been somewhat of a I don't know, kind of introverted, or I, I was 
certainly very quiet, bookish type, didn't really dig on talking to people that much unless they shared my my interest in one particular thing. I, I always would have more more enjoyment burying my nose in a book uh, in my free time than going to hang out with friends and stuff. That I forced myself to change that mentality because I, I've seen what amazing things happen if I communicate with people, even people who might not want to communicate with me, not people that hate me, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of them, but it's more somebody who might be resistant to, you know, engage in some sort of communication and reaching out to them and, and talking like, hey, how do you do what you do? Or, hey, can you tell me about this, this thing that you do, regardless of what it may be? Building that human connection with somebody and having this sort of, I don't know, I refer to it as almost like a support group at a company in, in a position. If you know people in all these different departments, all these different groups, it's so critical to have those resources when you're dealing with different problems you might be trying to solve. And it also broadens the way that you think about things, hearing perspectives from, a, from different people. One of the things that I don't think I put it down in the book, but I think I had to cut it for space. But one of the things that I used to do whenever tackling a new project is I would go around to people that I knew in the company in different departments that I knew were going to be brutally honest to me because we had that sort of personal understanding. And I would, I would just walk up to them and be like, hey, I got this idea. Tell it to me straight. Tell me how stupid this is. And I'd tell them the idea. And 90% of the time, they'd be like, yeah, it sounds stupid, Ben. Like, what the hell? But that 10%, if I get a unanimous 10% of the time, everybody's saying, no, that's really cool. I'd love to work with you on that. Can we can we meet next week or meet in two weeks? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then walk them through what I'm thinking and how I would go about it. Not in like, oh, here's some demo code that I wrote. I'm not going to show that to somebody from you know marketing or ops or sales or something, but block it out on a whiteboard. Like, here's like the general idea of, this sort of information, what if this happened? And what if we did this? And they'll tear it apart and they'll they'll find all the flaws in it. And I'll do that one-on-one. -on -one, and then eventually when I have it sort of in a position where each individual person has, has kind of gone through that process of breaking it down with me, I'll have a group meeting with everybody. They're like, hey, here's what all your feedback created. This is all due to everybody in this room. So I wanted to say thanks and let's walk through what we all designed together. And that part of communication is also important. And it's advice that I get to all of my mentees. Any success that you have is a we. Any failure that you have is an I. And if you have that mentality, the Navy beat that into me, by the way. But if you have that mentality as working in a profession like data science or ML engineering, it'll it'll take you far. And it's not just saying that. It's not just, okay, something screwed up. I know that I have to write an email saying that I screwed this up. It's it's a mentality that you you cultivate where you realize that nothing you do, no matter how amazing it may seem, because some of the stuff that, that we end up building seems pretty cool. A lot of people think it's really cool. And when it works, it, it's awesome. But you're not building that alone. Somebody came up with the idea or came up with the problem statement. Somebody was doing it before you came along. And somebody hopefully was involved in every step of the way of building that that solution give credit where credit's due and and keep that as part of your way of being and your mentality people appreciate that more so than what most people might think when you hand out that credit that like hey this person helped with this major project and here's all the other people that that helped 
don't put their names on a slide at the at the back end of a company wide presentation. Nobody cares. Talk about them. Pre- like talk about that on slide one when you're doing your presentation. Like, hey, I wanted to call out all these people that what you're about to see, they were instrumental in building this. But then when the model falls apart or when the project starts just barfing everywhere, it's predicting nonsense or the thing drifts so much you miss something in the implementation, own that and be very upfront with executives, with management, with your team lead. Like, hey, I screwed this up, but you know what? I'm going to figure out why it's broken and I'm going to fix it and make sure that it's not going to do that again so that we don't have to suffer through this this uh, pain again. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I've experienced that as well, that any success should be a we. It If you make the success an I, it doesn't really work. No. Like people just don't really believe you or don't trust. I don't know. It just doesn't doesn't sit right. And then making the failure a we can work if it's like truly out of your control. But it's often best to make it your problem because then people have faith that you will get things done the right way. So completely agreed on that point. Yeah. And how do, you mentioned that the Navy beat that into you. How did they beat that into you? Just out of curiosity. Physically. <laughs> it's just that's actually what I've had a lot of people ask me, like, oh, what was boot camp like? I'm like, I, it was okay. Not a lot of sleep, living in pretty cramped quarters. But the thing, and people are like, oh, did it teach you how to how to kill people? Did it teach you how to shoot guns? I'm like, no, not at all. That's not the purpose of it. If that's your job in the military, you will go to a school after that where they teach you that stuff. Boot camp has firing weapons and it has hand-to-hand combat, has a lot of running a lot of marching. The whole point of it is to is to hammer into your head that you only succeed if everybody succeeds. And if something goes wrong, it's even if it's the person next to you, the reason they screwed up is because you didn't prevent them from screwing up. So it's your fault. And everybody gets that same message. If they don't, they don't get to stay. They get asked to leave, not asked. They get told to leave. So you have to learn that in that. And it's some people learn it explicitly, like they understand like, oh, this is what I'm here for. Other people just learn learn it implicitly, subconsciously. But you see when you get out to the fleet or you go on to you know further training that everybody has that sort of mentality of, hey, we're in this together. We have a mission, regardless of what the mission may be. The thing that's most important is that you're working together. And if something goes wrong, you need to take ownership of, of it. Can you Don't build that in a company? Yeah. Can you build that in a company without boot camp? Of course. You can't build that company wide. Sorry to say, CEOs. Nobody at the top is ever going to be able to do that. And you can look at the pattern that military organizations use as well. Chief of Naval Operations. Sorry, I don't know who it is right now, but that four star admiral is not going and interacting with individual you know, crews on ships. If they did, they would be traveling 365 days a year and probably visiting three ships a day. It's just not how you can scale that. So, and the the CNO is not issuing emails to everybody in the Navy. Commandant of the Marine Corps is not doing that either. What they're doing is instructing a culture value system that is then passed down through the ranks where the people that install instill cultural values are first-line leaders. So non-commissioned officers and leading petty officers in the Navy are the ones who are setting the, the rules of the road, so to speak, for their immediate crew. So every one of those those teams 
on a, a ship, even if like, I served on an aircraft carrier for my first uh, first uh, deployed mission. And, you know, we got 6,500 people on one of those things. It's a, it's a small town. It's a very big ship. But you never have a unit of core people that work together every day that's more than about 20. So it's even if the department is huge and you might have 800 people in a department that's split up into shops from at least speaking from my own experience in engineering we had even in electrical division which is where i started out we had six different electrical shops each one had about 12 people in it and each one had a leading petty officer and a chief petty officer so non-commissioned people each department had its own you know officer that that is a junior officer that supervised all of those people. So in electrical division, we had 300 something people. I'm oh, sorry, we had like 200 people. But you have a, a large group of people, but the people that are setting the stage for what is the culture like at that command are receiving the instruction from their superiors about how command and control needs to, to function. And boot camp prepares you for that by sort of giving a shock to your system. But in, in companies, it's the same thing. When you arrive to a new job, it's a culture shock. You've never been in that environment before. You have no idea who these people are. You might know one or two people at the company, but for the most part, you're in a whole different environment. Your body and your mind are going into a like a, a mild form of shock as you're adjusting to your you know, surroundings. Like, hey, who can I trust here? Who's who's really cool? And who do I need to get to know? Everybody's doing that and thinking through those, those scenarios, but so that it's effectively your first your onboarding week at a company is like boot camp for that company. You're just getting the lay of the land and preparing your brain to be rewired to adapt to this new environment. But that culture at a company is set by those first line leaders. So your technical lead in the data science group, the you know the the chief independent contributor of your your department is going to be somebody from a who's going to be setting the stage for implementation quality and like how you're going to be thinking through projects and building them but how that team functions and works together that's the team lead and if they're not working to build that culture that everybody's collaborative and people work with one another to help one another out and egos are left at the door you know if, if you're not doing that you're not creating a a team culture that's going to be successful in the long run. Anybody who's good, who wants to work in an environment like that is going to go take a job at a place that has that environment. And anybody who's toxic and doesn't want to play with the the team, they're going to, they're going to stick around and they're going to poison the well. Got it. That, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. And I think the parallels to military, not that I have any experience, but the parallels make a lot of sense. And there are a lot of analogies like pick a team that you would want to go to war with. They're they're apt in a lot of in a lot of cases. It's really important to have trust and know that everybody wants the best for each person, but also for the team. And mm -hmm. that is not always the case in a lot of situations, but um, it's something definitely to strive for. As a, Just out of curiosity, as a tech lead, what? how do you set the tone for culture? I mean, number one is lead by example. So if you want a, a highly cohesive, egoless team, 
you have to embody that to the nth degree. So if you want people to feel like they're not being judged when they ask questions, that I've been in teams and in companies where the new person asks a question and they're all, they're basically trembling sitting in a, a meeting room with, with their peers. You can see how scared they are. Maybe they worked for a company before where they were just stomped all over every time they asked something that somebody thought was a dumb question. So as a tech lead, you, you have to identify that and you have to make it so that everybody feels completely comfortable with being honest about what they know and what they don't know, because there's nothing more dangerous in this field than somebody not saying that they don't know something. If you don't have that honesty, nobody's going to know that you need time to go and learn that or research that. If you make it that implied assumption that like, oh yeah, I don't want to tell my my manager that, I, that I've never built this type of a model. I'll just figure it out. I'll wing it because I'm too afraid to speak up. I don't want them to think I'm an idiot. That's not on the individual employee to fix themselves, which some managers and some tech leads think that is. You know, if you're a tech lead and you're getting paid more than everybody else in your team and you're a leader, you need to act like a leader and realize that the people under you, they're your responsibility. And that's not just the work that comes out of them. It's their mental well-being, how happy they are working there. Do they, they really enjoy this job? If they don't, you're failing as a tech lead, like absolute fail. And good companies get rid of people like that before getting rid of the employees that are the worker bees, as they should. Bad companies do it the other way around. They wait for a, you know, a really outspoken person who's really unhappy. They're just glad to see them go because it's less paperwork that they have to do. And that manager or that tech lead just stay in that position of poisoning the team. So that, that's when you get the good people leaving. But yeah, I guess that's my my final answer with that, which is <laughs> it's the culture is all up to the, like that lead and exploring how to make how to have communications within on both an individual and within a group situation and really getting to know the people that are on the team about like what are their passions what what do they enjoy doing in this role what do they want to learn more about you know what do they not know do they want to go down a path of getting better at these things you can only know all of that stuff if you actually talk to people and that's a big part of being a team lead is talking yeah, I completely agree. A couple points. So when you think of yourself as a tech lead, you can almost think of yourself as a parent and your direct reports are your kids and they will soak up everything that you do. It's not like you have to mentor them and like change their diaper, although maybe you do, but it's more about leading by example and every single thing that you do will have reverberations downstream and it's tough. So if you're going through a really tough week and you yell at someone, that's not ideal. Obviously, you can fix it by being like having integrity and apologizing and such. But there are a lot more eyes on you and you have a lot more influence than you think. That being said, even as the most junior person, you still have a lot of impact. There's not as many eyes on you and people don't look to you as much for culture. But slowly and surely, you can change things dramatically. Um, I've, I've experienced that a couple of times where more junior people can really influence how teams talk to each other the types of projects that are implemented, how people go about projects. So don't underestimate your ability if you are on the more junior side. One example is I really like getting to know my coworkers. And I've noticed that that tends to facilitate conversations about real life instead of work. So if you start a meeting off, you say, oh, how is your XYZ doing? 
And then you can chat for a bit. And maybe you don't like that. Maybe that's not your thing. Totally fine. Just go straight into work. But you really have a lot of influence within your team, no matter where you are. So I just wanted to, to point that out because I've seen it be very evident for better and for worse. Yeah. One interesting thing you brought up was yelling. <laughs> Pro tip advice for team leaders out there who want to know how, how the military do with that. The only time that you yell at somebody and really get angry with them is when they either violate trust or are doing something that affects team cohesion. Anything else, if somebody screws something up and is well-intentioned, but they just messed it up, they broke a piece of equipment, they, they caused something to catch on fire, provided that they didn't do something that put people's safety and lives at risk, that would be a stern talking to you, maybe not a screaming at, but everything else, people make mistakes. And the only time that they need to be dressed down, like being like really yelled at, is when they do something that is in violation of the culture of that team, where somebody is you know, trying to sabotage somebody else's work or trying to take credit for stuff that they didn't do or trying to make it all about them or just being a complete dirtbag and not like, hey, you're on call, you're not doing anything, you're waiting for the next person to handle all this stuff. So anything that ruins the dynamics of the team, that's cause for you know chewing somebody out. But, and I, I've seen it way too many times, somebody implements something incorrectly or there's a bug in the code and the manager comes down yelling and, or takes the team lead aside and chews them out in an office. It's like, like what, what are you trying to accomplish here other than make everybody afraid of you that you're going to fire them? You just destroyed the team culture by doing that. So tips all the managers out there who manage tech people. The only time you should be yelling at somebody is if they're destroying your team culture. And maybe that's not even worth yelling. It's not even worth uh, getting yourself worked up about. Just get rid of the pe person. Get somebody who's a bad apple. Just can them. They can find something else to do. Because the single most important asset that you have in tech as a, in an organization is the culture of your team. Got to protect it. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, it's to ensure quality over time you really need to make sure that it's an environment that people want. And if they don't want it, they'll leave. It's, it's that simple. But yeah, we have once again rambled about non-machine learning things for an hour. <laughs> Arguably more important about getting ML projects off the ground is, is a lot of these topics. Yeah, no, that's 100% that's true. But Ben, you want to close us out? Yeah, I mean, this was fun, definitely. Talking about the, the softer skills about how to successfully do ML. That's why that first third of the book is is talking about, we didn't talk about everything that's in that first third of the book, but some of the more important things to think about, about team cohesion and communication and then the process of getting through a project. So if you're interested, check it out, Amazon, Manning.com. You just find it by my name, Ben Wilson, Adventure, I mean, uh, Machine Learning in Action uh, by Manning. So yeah, thanks everybody for tuning in this week. Uh, we'll probably try to do a, a couple more episodes where we're talking about stuff like this. And uh, But next week, we're going to go back into heavy ML talk and about something that is rather complex. So that one should be uh, rather interesting. But we'll make it simple. Yes. Don't worry. Simpler. <laughs> yes. Simpler. All right. So uh, thanks, everybody. And until next time, I've been Ben Wilson. And Michael Burke. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.